0: All right, everyone, we'll get started. I want to maximize our time with our speaker. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being with us on this lovely April morning. You couldn't ask for nicer weather than this, can you? So those of you who know, uh, who are either longtime parishioners or are um, longtime visitors to St. John's know that we being the Church of the Presidents and February being President's Month, always, each February, feature the presidency of a given president. We devote three talks to one. Uh, but those have always been uh, past presidents, even if the past president was living. At least in my memory, we have never featured an incumbent president, so today's the first. Second, as Evan and I were just discussing, it's a particularly good day to talk about the Biden presidency, because if the news reports are accurate, he's at Camp David now, we know that that part's accurate. (laughs) But according to news reports, he's spending the weekend at Camp David to contemplate whether to announce re-election, and he's slated to do that this week, probably Tuesday. So time will tell. So for both those reasons, who better to have among us this morning than the acclaimed Evan Osnos, uh, and a terrific uh, New Yorker reporter and uh, the biographer of President Biden. So we all know Evan from his lyrical writing and insightful analysis in The New Yorker over the years about US domestic politics and foreign policy. As we were just discussing beforehand for a number of years, he was The New Yorker's China correspondent based in Beijing. And those years was the basis for his book, The Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, uh, Truth and Faith in the New China, which won the 2014 National Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. But don't worry. Before Evan's time at The New Yorker, he was at the Chicago Tribune as an investigative reporter, and he was part of a team that did win the Pulitzer Prize then. His latest book is called um, uh, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, and you can imagine if you haven't read the book what that's about. And of course, the subject of today's talk is the 2020 international bestseller, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now, which I hold in my hands. So Evan, like Dr. Fauci a month ago or so, suggested that we depart from our traditional um, speaker uh, format, lecturer, and then questions afterwards, and rather that he and I have a conversation between us for the first 30 minutes. So with that, we'll begin, and thank you, Evan, very much for joining us today. So we're just gonna alternate at the microphone here. I thought that if we had two chairs, those of you in the back might not be able to see. So, Evan, let's start at the beginning. Not the beginning of the book, but rather the beginning of uh, President Biden's life. We all know that he is the product of a a small, tight-knit Irish Catholic family. Could you talk a little bit about his family, Mm -hmm. his faith, his financial circumstances growing up, and how all of that, in your view, shaped his political career and his presidency to this day?
1: Sure, yeah. Thank you, Clark. That is a—it's a lovely introduction, and it's a treat to be here. I have to say, um, I have—I have I've never attended a service here at the church, but uh, I feel a little bit of a connection to it for a couple reasons. We have an Episcopal priest in the family, and then also, uh, I was here on a very difficult day a couple of years ago as a reporter, um, watching real drama and pain unfold all around the church, and to be back here today and to see it thriving is, uh, is, a, is a source of great solace and energy, and all of you are credit to uh, clearly making it what it is. So um, thank you for having me. Uh, I'll tell you, before I, I, I say a little bit about Joe Biden and where he comes from, I'll say why it is that I wrote this book, why I became, in a sense, almost I think of as an accidental Biden, expert. Um, I was in China for a long time, as Clark mentioned. I was there for eight years, and I first saw Biden when he came over to Beijing. He was, at that point in 2011, vice president of the United States, of course, and his counterpart was this scrappy up-and-comer, the vice president of China named Xi Jinping. And the two of them, because they were titular counterparts, spent an astonishing amount of time together. They went on this kind of buddy comedy across China for hours and then came back to the United States and did it again. And they went to a basketball game in LA. In fact, Biden ended up spending more time with Xi Jinping than anybody in the United States government. Uh, And I will tell you, he came back to the United States and he gave a briefing on the subject of Xi it was an internal briefing at the time. Uh, some of the details have now become available to us. But he had an insight at the time that was not really the consensus view, which is he came back and said to his peers in the government, this Xi Jinping is serious business. He does not have a democratic bone in his body. <laughs> and that has turned out to be quite an insight. And in a way, that, I took a lesson from that. One is. Joe Biden's had a few laps around the track. That's a, a, a breaking news thing. I know I just revealed a, a really powerful, sensitive fact. But he's picked up a few lessons along the way. And he's picked up a sense of, call it the sort of animal spirits of politics. He understands what's going on a little bit outside the usual metrics of how we measure people's character, their intentions. And he looked at Xi Jinping, came away with a view of who this man is. And so that sense of his kind of political judgment intrigued me. When I moved back to the United States in 2013, I moved to Washington. I was still, I was slightly befuddled by this place. I couldn't figure out how do you cover Washington, D.C. My God, this is so complex. Um, And I said, but I do, I know a lot about foreign affairs. This is really my natural home. I know somebody who's doing a lot of foreign affairs. It's Joe Biden. He, at that point, had the portfolios for Iraq, and for China, and, um, and for Ukraine, interesting. I ended up going to Ukraine with him. But uh, I said, I'm going to see if I can get an interview with Vice President Biden. And I, This is another shocking piece of, fat, of news, but it's not the most coveted office in the land. <laughs> and so I called up his office, and I said, do you think I might be able to get some time with Vice President Biden? And they said, well. How about any time?
0: <laughs> how
1: about any time at all? <laughs> and I said, okay, great. So I would go and I, sp- I had an interview with him in his office and, I- and he was very generous with his time and saw him again and so on. And I was quite impressed with his capacity to sense where things were going. And I will- I'll just mention one other last bit on the kind of how I come to this before explaining a little bit more about my sense of his origins. One is that this was now 2014, I remember we were having a, an interview where he was describing his sense of where the Democratic Party was. And he said, I think the party is making a big mistake. I said, why? And he said, I think we're not talking enough to working class people, to blue collar people. And um, I think we're gonna come to pay a price for that. And at the time, you have to remember, 2014 is before the rise of Bernie Sanders as a political force. Obviously, Bernie Sanders had been in politics since, since the Old Testament, but he had not actually <laughs> become the phenomenon that we know. Donald Trump was not, he, Donald Trump was actually, on the day that I interviewed Joe Biden, Donald Trump was, I think, renegotiating his contract for The Apprentice. Um, so he sensed a profound kind of underground river of political movement. And to my immense shame, I remember hearing him say that and I thought, I don't think he's right about that and I didn't even mention it in my write-up of that meeting. So I learned a lesson which is listen more, um, try not to be quite as judgmental about whether somebody is right or wrong in that moment. Try to actually hear what it was he was saying. So Joe Biden, um, I don't know if you've heard this, but he's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. (laughs) And there's a couple of key facts about his life. One is important for us to talk about, and that's faith. The role of the church in his life is inextricable from his sense of himself. And he has a, a kind of contested relationship with the church. I mean, he is devoted to it utterly, and yet he is somewhat, he sort of bridles against the strictures of it, as you know, Uh, He is at odds, in some cases, with parts of the church because of his views on abortion. And yet he remains a devoted, probably our most devout president, uh, certainly the most devout Democratic president in a very long time, since Jimmy Carter, perhaps. Um, I think that when you look at his childhood, the church meant a couple things to him. Uh, One, it meant order. It helped him understand what matters. It also helped him find his way as, a, um, as, a, as an Irish American. You know, As a teenager, he was in, at Archmere Academy when John F. Kennedy was elected, first Roman Catholic president. And Joe Biden was a junior going, I think he was a senior at that point. What did he do? He went to the library and he started looking up John F. Kennedy's background. To understand how do you become president of the United States? If a Roman, if an Irish Catholic could be president, then Joe Biden could be in his mind. And the answer that he discovered was you go to law school, and so he uh, that was sort of charted the path for him in some ways. Um, the other kind of a couple a couple of other details that I think are important about his origins. One, his father, as you know, had money at one point in his life. His father had sort of come from money. There was there was a period of time when the Bidens were prosperous. And then it was, it was essentially gone. They'd sort of lost it over the course of a series of business failures. And there was a detail that always struck me, which is that Joe Biden Sr. kept a polo mallet in the closet, in the front hall coat closet. And it was a kind of relic of the world that they had had access to and then had slipped away. And he had a very brittle and sensitive self sense of offense. And there was a story in which Joe Biden Sr. was working as a a car dealer at one point selling cars. And they were at a Christmas party. And the owner of the car dealership had a stunt at one point where he said, all right, everybody. And he tipped a bucket of quarters out onto the floor. And then everybody was supposed to scramble for it and pick up the quarters. And it was going to be this kind of fun and fundamentally humiliating exercise. And Joe Biden Sr. grabbed his wife's hand and said, we're leaving. And there's a bit of that pridefulness, a bit of that sense of I will not be embarrassed, I will not be humiliated, I will not make somebody feel less of myself that is inherited in his son. And it's, it's driven him for good and for bad for a very long time. His mother always told him, and all of the kids, you are no better than anybody else and you are no worse than anybody else. And it's that delicate balance of, I think, um, pride and approachability that actually has turned out to be a key piece of his political special sauce. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about the start in politics. And you previewed
0: this. So um, you tell the anecdote in the book that his then-girlfriend's mom asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, I want to be... President of the United States. So can you talk a little bit about the beginning of his political career? How improbable it was a little bit, especially the Senate race that really catapulted him to the presidency.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean he was on his first date with his late wife, Nelia Hunter, and these, you know, the parents of his of his date did the thing you do. You say, So, Joey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, President, and they said, Of what? And he said, Of the United States, ma'am. And uh You know, they allowed him to stick around, uh, and they married. Um, There is, I mean, in the history of politics, in the sort of annals of politics, the 1972 Senate race in Delaware is amazing, because Joe Biden was running against a guy named Caleb Boggs, who was a giant in Delaware politics. I mean, he was senator, governor. He was a a kind of man of tremendous stature. It was assumed he was going to win. Biden started with nothing in the race. Uh, His family basically ran it. His siblings were his campaign. Uh, And he and his wife went around from coffee event to coffee event. They were a kind of dynamic, young, sort of attractive duo. And um, they had these little kids. And he became a symbol of a transition moment in politics, which is useful for us to remember. I mean, this was a generational change at the time. And Joe Biden presented himself as the bright young thing. It's easy to forget this, but it becomes important later because so many of, I think, for all of us, the, the self-image that we have as a, when we first achieve success gets a little bit fixed in our imagination. And we, you know, for a long time, Joe Biden was the next great, exciting hope. And he always saw himself as the young man in the room. And so it took some accommodation later in life for him to realize, oh, wait a second, that's not how other people perceive me. Um, He's still struggling with that, actually, (laughs) to this very day, to this very day. But in that race, two things that I think are especially important to remember. One, there was a moment on the debate stage that people forget where um, there was a question that was posed about foreign policy. And Biden had made himself a little bit of a student of foreign affairs at that point. He was opposed to the war in Vietnam. And a question was posed to Cale Boggs about uh, sort of a detail of foreign policy. It was clear that his opponent, it was clear that Boggs did not know the answer. And Biden had this moment. I mean, anybody in politics will recognize. He could have just run his sword right through his opponent. And he held back because, as he said later, instead he kind of gave a slightly mealy-mouthed answer. He said, well, you know, these kinds of things are, can be hard to And then he gave his answer, which was the the right answer. But it was not the triumphant victory that he could have had at that moment. And his judgment, it was not, this was not, you know, pure benevolence or generosity. It was actually quite calculating. But it took a fundamentally, um, I think, robust sense of human nature, which he said nobody wanted to see this young guy get up there and uh, politically assassinate his opponent. That was not going to feel right to anybody. It wasn't going to feel good. And I hear echoes of that. For one thing, you heard a lot of that in 2020. He had these moments on the debate stage where he could have sort of said things that would have been more destructive of his opponents. Remember, he was getting criticized for being too mild and being, people said, does he still have any any juice left? And Ron Klain told me later, I remember this was very distinctly, Ron Klain said, give me a break. That was a strategy because he knew if he was going to get the nomination, he had to consolidate the field, and if he had ripped everybody to ribbons, there'd be nothing to consolidate because everybody would be against him, nobody would wanna come out and support him. And it's true, if you talk to Joe, if you talk to you know Bernie Sanders after, he said, the reason I endorsed so quickly was because Joe Biden took me seriously and didn't treat me uh, the way that a lot of people did. And of course, you can't talk about the 72 campaign about, without what happened to his family. His wife and his daughter died in a car accident, everybody knows that but I don't think they know, and I'll just mention it briefly because I think it's really quite important, is um, Biden considered suicide after the death of his wife and after his daughter uh, was killed in that accident. And he did not think he was gonna take his seat in the Senate. He thought, I'm gonna go home and take care of these boys. He thought about actually joining the priesthood. He talked to a priest about it um, and Actually, what the priest said was, why don't you go do this job that you have, you've been, just been elected to the Senate, and talk to me again in six months, and we'll see how you feel. And um, Biden ended up taking the job and, in in, of course, you know, entered the Senate on the belief that, as his sister said to him at the time, if you collapse, if you cave in, nobody's going to be here for these two orphaned boys. And so you don't have that option. So get to work. And it, you know, that sort of sustained him and I think established the kind of grand narrative sort of metaphor for his life, which, of course, we can talk about more. That's great. And then, of course, uh, because of that tragedy,
0: he famously began that an hour and a half commute every day between Washington and Delaware. And you point out in the book that he, as a result of that, was a terrific father but didn't become part of the Washington permanent class. Uh, can you talk a little about, a bit about that and also the degree to which he was never tarred by any scandal, you know, sexual scandal, financial scandal, cut quite, quite an unusual standout guy in the Washington of the time and today.
1: Yeah, I mean he had scandal certainly when it came to the 87-88 race, the plagiarism scandal, we can talk about that. But being on the outside with his, in a sense, just a degree removed from the cool kids in Washington. Was a, was a fundamental, became a fundamental fact of how he sees the world. And it goes back actually to his childhood. I mean, his, I know we, people will talk about his stutter and sometimes people will sort of, it gets turned into the kind of cheap fairy tale of political origins, you know, he overcomes the stutter and off we go and so on and so on. It is not how he sees it. I mean, to this day, it is still a fact of his life. He doesn't like to talk about the fact that the stutter remains. Um, But in his notes, he still makes marks where he knows he needs to pause. And it's baked in to how he communicates. Um, And he never saw himself as somebody to whom reading and intellectualism came easily. And he has a love-hate relationship with it. I mean, in some ways, because he was not, as he once used this expression with me offhand, and I thought it was very telling, he said, "All oh, the Rhodes Scholars and all that, talking about another group. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And yet he surrounds himself with Rhodes Scholars. I bet if you charted it, I haven't done the data on this, but he has a, he has a, he has a healthy appetite for people of kind of credentialed, lettered achievement. And I think that's partly because he wants to say, are you so smart, uh, you know, there's a constant, this gets into the ecology of his staff and how he communicates and how he works with them but he likes to press people who have achieved in the conventional metrics and he likes to the under the undertone is always um, if you're so smart, how come I got this one right? And so, but being a little bit on the outside, he talked about he was not one of the Obama world, he was not one of the Clinton world, he always felt a little bit of the way LBJ felt, frankly, in the Kennedy administration, you know, a little bit of the corn pone of the operation. And that insecurity, um, I think, turned out to be productive because um, when he got into the to the Congress, he was not taken particularly seriously. He was very young, he was a little kind of callow, was the read, and he had this moment, a couple of embarrassing moments in public speeches where he realized, okay, I got called out for not doing the reading. It was one about oil wells. He was holding forth with great passion on the subject of oil wells. And they said, a senator from Oklahoma got up and said, uh, Senator Biden, do you know anything about oil wells? And he kind of uh, went back to the office and he started becoming quite diligent about boning up on this stuff and he, to the point that he is, is, is pretty tough on staff in getting as much as he can. But being a little bit on the outside turned out to be a superpower running against a president like Donald Trump who, um, in a sense projected the sense that he had total command of all information at all times, knew everything. And Joe Biden doesn't really kind of give off that vibe. It's a slightly different vibe. And that turned out to be valuable to
0: him. Let's talk a little bit about the Senate career. So he, and you said this, he joined the Senate very, very young. And he joined at a time when there were lots of giants there. Mike Mansfield, Hubert Humphrey, Teddy Kennedy, etc., to whom he became very close Robert Byrd, etc., and he ultimately became one of them. He became a Senate titan himself, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Can you talk a little bit about the highs and lows of his careers and his legislative accomplishments?
1: Yeah, I think uh, he early on he was most interested in foreign affairs, and he went on a trip, actually, to Moscow at one point, Uh, hit one of his first foreign trips, and uh, Bill Bradley, who was on that trip with him, told the story later to me. He said, you know, Biden's listening to his counterpart, it was the Soviet foreign minister who was kind of thundering at him, and Biden finally says, hold on, I'm gonna stop you right there. We have an expression, where I come from, which is, and pardon my use of this language in this august place, he said, don't shit a shitter. (laughs) And Bradley then went up to the uh, translator afterward and he said, just out of curiosity, (laughs) (laughs) how'd you work that one? And the translator, translator, who was a sort of, you know, officious and quite nervous fellow said, not literally. And so that, being a kind of foreign affairs guy, was very important to Biden. And that and and gave him a great sense of being somewhat, a little bit larger than Delaware, and kind of having this long reach. And it played, it was to his great benefit. Um, on the Judiciary Committee, his high point, for, in his perspective, was the Bork hearings, in which he believes that he succeeded in um, managing a very complex process. And probably the low point would be the Clarence Thomas hearings in 91. And I think if you put those two in sort of some relationship to one another, that does capture his experience, which was he was always trying to be friends with people across the aisle to make sure that they felt like they were being heard. And um, that worked sometimes to his benefit and sometimes to his detriment, I think. Um,
0: so that gets us to the second major tragedy in his life, which is how you opened the book. Can you talk a little bit about that incident and, you know, the effect that might be having today?
1: Yeah, it's, this is a moment that is honestly, I think, almost forgotten uh, for people who haven't paid attention to his career, which is that in February of 1998... Uh, he had just had a big disaster in his presidential campaign. He had been, as you remember, quoting Neil Kinnock over the course of the campaign, and he would cite Kinnock, British Labour leader, and he'd been citing Kinnock as a couple of things. And then it was one day where he did not cite Kinnock and kind of, slightly strangely, absorbed the Kinnock story into his own. And he talked about having. Um, um, coal miners in his background. None of that was true. He didn't have coal miners in his background. And later, by the way, when, you, when he talked about it, he said, the honest fact is I was not ready to be president. I was too, this is his word, I was too arrogant. And meaning that when he got heated or he got flustered, he would, he would sort of scamper beyond the truth. And that's what happened in that moment. So he gets drummed out of the race. And then in February of 88, He is giving a speech up in Rochester, New York, and he goes back to his hotel room afterwards. And he suddenly feels a pain in his head that, as he described, it was like an axe parting the hemispheres of his brain. And he is out cold. And he comes to, he has no idea where he is or what's happened, and he sort of claws himself onto his bed, manages to call his assistant, who was in the other room, and says, I don't know what's happening, but I think I'm dying. And they uh, managed to get him on a plane and get him back to Delaware. It turned out that he had a catastrophic cranial aneurysm followed by another one later. But it was so severe, it was so close to the end that they actually summoned a priest to read him last rites. We were talking just a moment ago about whether in fact those rites were read. But that's what the doctor said. This is about as close to the end as we can imagine you, uh, being. And he was out of the Senate for seven months. I mean, it was just a, a, an astonishing injury for somebody like that. He, they told him at one point when he was going into surgery, um, they said, you know, you might never speak again because they were going to have to do such delicate and, and deep work. And in that moment, I will give him credit for finding a little bit of humor, and he said, I wish that had happened six months ago. (laughs) And I think he came out of that experience with, um, it was a settling moment. His life could really be read as a series of settling moments when this man who was just naturally born partly because of his parents, partly because of who he is, with this volcanic sense of ambition, And then he had these, these, these chastening moments, these settling moments that just, over time, matured him a, a bit by bit. And the near death of that time was one of them, and he had more to follow. Uh, but you can't understand who he is today without understanding that in his mind, he has had this repeated encounter between the most literal seam between life and death. He saw it with the death of his wife and his daughter. He saw it in his own near death uh, at when he was my age now. And I find kind of amazing to think about. And then of course, later with the death of his son, Bo. And I think some of that gave him a kind of philosophical sort of spiritual armament that when the United States was then confronting the, the agonies of the pandemic, He did have a way of talking about life and death in a way that a lot of us, frankly, a lot of people who have made it to, you know, that house across the street have have really not had that kind of experience. And um, that's a little bit of his equipment that it comes to it with.
0: So let's talk a little bit now about the vice presidential years. How is it that uh, Obama approached him about it? What led Obama to pick him? What was the relationship between the two like? And what do you think his accomplishments if any failures were during the course of the vice
1: presidency, yeah, that was that was an interesting uh, relationship because it was a bit of a shotgun marriage, as vice presidencies sometimes are. Yeah, you know, when they met, the very one of the very first times that they encountered one another, it was not a perfect match. Um, Biden, at that point, was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Obama was newly elected, and he came into a hearing and received what could only be described as the full Biden. Biden was holding forth with some, um, with some investment. It was going on and on and on, and, Biden, uh, and Joe and, and Barack Obama scribbled a note and passed it to his aide, Robert Gibbs, and it said, kill me now. <laughs> <laughs> And yet, these two found their way back to something that was quite profound for a couple reasons. One, Obama had to go through a little bit of a, of a chastening period of his own where he had to realize that this, this guy who came out of Illinois like a rocket ship actually didn't know all that much about things like foreign affairs. And Biden became a real counselor to him. And he was sort of admiring of the way that Biden was able to handle complex negotiations and, and complex questions, particularly around things like Afghanistan. And then the, the, the reality, the political reality, was that Obama needed somebody like Biden to balance out the ticket in 2008. Uh, he felt he was very weak with working class white men and Joe Biden could help him with that. One interesting insight on that experience that gets to some of the themes we've been talking about is when Joe Biden was offered the job of being vice president, he was home, Jill Biden told me this story. They were home and Biden wasn't really sure he wanted to be a vice president. He sort of never wanted, you never, he never ran for vice president and he never saw himself that way. He was the son of the man who leaves the room when they throw the quarters on the floor. And he said to his wife, you know, I'm not sure I can do that. I don't know if I can work for somebody. I've been my own boss since 1972. Is this really gonna work? And she said in the way that only a spouse can, Get a grip, of course you can do this. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, but that was the message. It might have been a little bit sportier in the actual delivery. And uh, she said, look, in fairness, this is actually a chance for you to do something. You've been involved in civil rights from the beginning of your political career. You are very opposed to uh, these wars that were now unfolding in 2008, which he thought partly out of personal experience because of his son Beau were a big mistake for the United States. You can do. You can have an impact on that. And that is, in fact, what he did. When he came in, I mean, interestingly, and this leads up to Afghanistan later, uh, and, the, and the, the agonies of that and the mistakes involved with that withdrawal, he was convinced from the very beginning that the United States needed to get out of Afghanistan. And he pushed for it and was in these... Uh, when I interviewed President Obama, he said, you know, I asked... I asked Joe, as he put it, to play a specific role, which in these, nego- in these debates over what to do in Afghanistan, I wanted him to be the guy who was pressing very hard, almost awkwardly hard, to get us out of Afghanistan. Partly because I knew that's what he believed, but I also needed somebody in the room to play that function. And interestingly, that led to a lot of clashes between Biden, people like Bob Gates, people in the Pentagon, and it's somewhat damaged that relationship in a way that I think Biden for a long time had felt that he never got a full hearing from the generals in uniform. You know, he was a Democrat who hadn't served and so on. And so finally, and I mentioned this to say he lost that debate at the time. Obviously, the United States uh, did not withdraw from Afghanistan. And then later, you fast forward to uh, to uh, when he finally had his hand on the tiller in the presidency and had this chance to say we're getting out of Afghanistan and we're going to do it no matter what people tell me about how this may go i think you know there's a, it's a whole separate conversation about what did he what did he believe would happen what did the intelligence community believe what did the department of defense believe but this is an example of a theme in his life which is that when he gets a, a bit between his teeth and he's he's going to do something it can be hard to dissuade him of that And that can be a a positive in some cases. And it can also sometimes come back uh, to harm him.
0: Okay, just one more question, and then I'll open it up. So um, can you talk a little bit about the 2020 campaign and how uh, one could argue that his whole life and political career prepared him for that campaign, in particular, against that opponent, and how he might approach the 2024 campaign that we expect to hear announced
1: formally on Tuesday? Mm. Your words, not mine. By the way, we'll we'll see. Uh, We'll see. It's more than a a rhetorical. We'll see only because he sometimes, uh, you know, he makes decisions quite cautiously, and we'll see what happens this week. Um, I mean, I'm not going to. I think he's going to run for president, but I just don't know exactly uh, what we're going to see. The 2020 campaign was this. In a way that would have been impossible to predict, it was the confluence of these threads of his life. Um, you know, he, when I first started interviewing him in 2014, his son Bo was living. And I remember an interview, it was a, in retrospect kind of a painful moment. We were talking, and he, stepped, he got a phone call and he stepped out. He said, I have to take this phone call. And he left to go receive a phone call. It was a medical update about, at that point, Bo's condition was not public. And they had good news, and the good news was that they were making progress. And of course, it turned out to be an illusion in the end. Bo, uh, Bo was killed by this terrible cancer, but the he came back into the room. His eyes were were wet. It it was so clear that the idea of losing his son was um, just such a profound, such a profoundly awful idea. I mean, he always talked about Bo Biden as. The best of me, you know. He was not only his namesake, but he, as he often said, he said all my, he has all my good qualities and none of my bad qualities. And I think that was a candid assessment on his part. Bo was also the person, by the way, who would stand behind his father during campaigns, and he was the only person who could signal. He would not do it with his head up; he would do it with his head down. But he'd say, "Wrap it up, Dad. Wrap it up." <laughs> we all need somebody like that. I think. <laughs> But when he lost Beau, I think it was uh, a truly, it was a, a just a, an assault on the spirit and on the soul in so many ways. He didn't think he was coming back to politics. He then sees this guy who is uh, Donald Trump who is in the presidency, who is uh, in so many ways the opposite of what he wanted to, of what Joe Biden believed should be in the White House. And I think to be, you know, if you, People who are very close to to Biden have told me over the years that the single thing, the thing that bothers him most is abuse of power. This goes back even to the point when he was a kid, there was a nun in his grade school class who was giving him a very hard time about the stutter, and his mother, the late Jean Biden, marched down there to the school and said... uh, you're going to apologize to my son or I'm going to come down and tear that bonnet off your head. And she was as prayerful a woman as you can possibly find under the sun. There was a way that that, if you, if you, when you start to see that as a recurring theme in his life, uh, that bothered him. And he, when he's, you know, so we got up there in this campaign and look, this is not going to be a huge shock. He was not the most popular politician in America. Joe Biden, I talked to Democrats, progressives, particularly young people who did not want this man. And yet, in a way, they came to believe that one, he had a pretty good chance of actually beating Donald Trump, and for that reason they had to support him. And two, and this turned out to be quite uh, prophetic, I remember speaking to some really plugged in progressive activists who said, our view is, we know Joe Biden is not our ideological, um, our, our ideological ally. He's a centrist, he uh, believes in kind of slow progress, But we also think that he believes that we're facing urgent crises in a a variety of things, like climate change, and that probably a centrist is the only person who's going to be able to sell these things and get them passed. If somebody tries to sell it from the left, it's not going to work. So it's a little bit like how Richard Nixon went to China. Richard Nixon, after all, was the one who created the Environmental Protection Agency. They took some lessons from LBJ, and I think there is some truth in that. And I think as we think about where Joe Biden's life may be heading from here, you know, he is a person who is naturally at home in the center of our politics. He has never been somebody uh, too far out. As he often said you know, when he was young, he was like, I was the only guy wearing a tie and a sport coat at the University of Delaware. Uh, he was a kind of an old fashioned, believes in the kind of doing it from the middle. And um, that turns out in this moment of just radical polarization that uh, that there's a that there's a kind of power in that. Sweet.
0: Okay, we've got time for questions now. Uh, anybody? Phil. Nope. So, in his vice presidential years,
1: you talked about successes and failures. Yeah. In the wake of Silver, uh, Silver Spring the school shooting. Yeah. And he was put in charge of, of this terrible blight on America. Yeah. I personally view that as a failure. In your interactions with him, how does he view his efforts on behalf of gun control? Could you just paraphrase it even for the recorder? Sure, yeah. It's a great question about the fact that when Biden was in the vice presidency, part of his portfolio was trying to bring an end to this scourge of gun violence, and he failed in that regard. I would would agree with you in that characterization. I would also say that failure has a lot of fathers. I think uh, that, I mean, it, to, be, to be precise about it, I didn't hear him, I have not heard, doesn't mean he hasn't done it, but I have not heard him personalize that issue in a way that I think he has other issues, and I can't honestly tell you the answer to that. I think you know, part of his whole way of going about politics has always been that he is a son of Delaware, which is almost precisely at, this, at the seam between north and south. And this has been a complicating fact for him. You know, at one point he was against busing and then he was for it before he was against it. and court ordered busing, I should say. And in some ways, he has always tried to serve both pieces of the country. And I think that that's probably true in his view of guns, which is to say, I think he, on a personal basis, he's not a, you know, he's not a big gun. He's not a gun owner, as far as I know. Um, Actually, he might, he might be, but I don't know. Um, He certainly doesn't see that as his natural political home, but I think he, he recognizes that getting to why it is that Americans have accumulated this lunatic attachment to guns is actually something that begins beneath the issue of guns. And that probably has to do with things about how they feel afraid or secure in their own lives, which comes from a whole complicated set of issues around their economic stability, their sense of identity, um, so, I mean, but I can tell you without, without a scintilla of doubt, I mean, as, just as a citizen and as a sort of person of Washington in this day and age, it is to my great shame that we are living through and are witness to and sort of s- we will bear the legacy of having lived through this moment of carnage in American life, I, mm-hmm. I find it kind of appalling. Um given all that you've said and
0: the whole backdrop of his values and then his incredible relationship with Beau and what he thought of Beau, what about Hunter, hmm. um, what kind of problems does Hunter really present um, for his political future? Yeah, for political
1: future? and I'll, for folks who didn't hear the question, it, you know, have, I've talked about Bo and the special relationship they had, but what about Hunter, what's the nature of that relationship and what role does it play in his political future? Um, it's a very it's a big painful um, theme in his life and I think you could go back and I you know this is as a father speaking now I say this that there was you heard him say of Bo over and over again that um, Bo was the best man I ever met mm-hmm. and I always think about how that sounds to hunter mm-hmm. and you know the reality is that Joe Biden hasn't had a drink of alcohol since he was a teenager. And that's because he believes the demon is within him. He knows that this alcoholism and substance abuse, addiction problem is raging in his DNA. I mean, this is not me speculating, he's said as much. He, He grew, he used to share a bedroom with an uncle of his who was just incapacitated by drink. And I think there's a reason why Joe Biden grew up and said, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna allow that, to, I'm never gonna be captive to that. But in a way, he didn't protect his son Hunter from that. And Hunter is a, a, a troubled man for that reason. And I think you, could, you have to decide for yourself how much you think that his business dealings over the years are uh, products of his own you know, profit motive or products of his own personal chemical dysfunction. That's for everybody else to decide. One thing I do know is that during the campaign and during the uh, and, and, you know, in the run-up to the 2020 campaign, there were two Republican committees that looked pretty hard to try to find evidence of Hunter Biden's business dealings shaping the policy of the United States or shaping Joe Biden's decision-making, and they didn't find it. I find it unlikely that they're going to find it now. Um, but, you know, I think he's gonna be contending with that. If that's the strongest thing that they can throw at him, I don't think that's probably gonna knock him out of the, out of the race. Uh, Chris? Uh,
0: thanks for the uh, fantastic talk. Uh, one thing you often hear from administration allies is that uh, the Joe Biden presidency in 50 years, we're gonna think that it as a climate presidency and sort of this is the most significant thing that the administration uh, is doing right now. Is that consistent with the way Joe Biden sees the world?
1: I think that one thing is that Joe Biden, that the sort of scar tissue of 80 years of the kinds of experiences we've been talking about would make him the first person to tell you, we have no idea how history is going to look on him and this period in 50 years. There's been a kind of, he has a somewhat humbled perception of how much we can actually ordain about ourselves and the world. So that's one thing. But I think he takes huge Satisfaction and pride, and a kind of edgy pride. A slightly, he's frustrated that the world doesn't recognize what he believes to be the scale of what they've achieved, whether it's on climate or on infrastructure. And he thinks they're going to, the world will look back on it and say, gosh, you know, this guy that we sort of kicked around a bit um, turned out to have his knowledge of legislative practice. And that turns out to be something that is, this is a theme I, I can. Confidently tell you, you're going to hear a lot more of over the course of the next few months. Is uh, that passing bills is that can survive and that can satisfy this very polarized and complicated legislative terrain. It's very difficult to do. It takes usually a little bit of experience, and you know, it's not so sexy. It's not like giving a great speech, but being able to work the cloakroom and manage to get things done is the work of the job. And I think he takes satisfaction in having been. Um, capable of assembling a team and then managing these personalities in a way to get these things done.
0: Well, we've hit the bewitching hour. Can you stick around for a few minutes? I'm I'm happy to start. (laughs)